just this moment where you, you feel really challenged, you feel really excited. And then when you get out, you're like, what? That was incredible. So yeah, there is physiologic process behind it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Major League Nutrition Show. I'm your host, Nicole Chenard, and you are in for a treat today. Today's host, I cannot wait to introduce you to. We have a lot in common, but she's way ahead of me in the field of nutrition and exercise. Her name is Dr. Rachel Pajednik. She is an associate professor and program director of exercise science in the Department of Health and Human Performance at Norwich University in Vermont, where she examines therapies designed to enhance performance and recovery. She's also the director of scientific research and education at Restore Hyper Wellness, which we'll be talking about in the in the show, and a research associate at the Institute of Lifestyle Medicine at Harvard Medical School and an award-winning faculty member at the Harvard Extension School. Previously, she was a tenure track assistant professor in the nutrition department at my alma mater, Simmons University in Boston, Massachusetts. For the past decade, Dr. Pajednik's work has examined nutrition, supplementation, and physical activity interventions on muscle physiology, performance, and recovery, as well as muscle-related chronic disease. She has received research funding from the NIH, National Institutes of Health, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, and the Vermont Biomedical Research Network, an NIH IDEA network of biomedical research excellence program. She has published extensively on vitamin D and CBD supplementation and their effects on skeletal muscle in health and disease, muscle physiology and aging with a focus on sarcopenia, physiologic metrics of muscle recovery in warfighters, the effects of nutrition and exercise intervention on diseases such as obesity and type 2 diabetes, and educational models for the healthcare professionals focused on nutrition and exercise, like yours truly. Dr. Pajednik serves on the governance board for the American College of Sports Medicine, ACSM, Exercises Medicine Initiative, the education board for the MedFit organization, and on the scientific advisory board for Healy.ai. She also... Can you believe it? There's more. She also has served as the co-chair of the ACSM EIM Education Committee, was the interim executive director for the Prescription for Activity Task Force, and the American Council on Exercise, ACE, Industry Advisory Panel. Dr. Pajednik has a particular passion for science communication, as you'll see in this video, or if you're listening, she's an amazing communicator and has been a consultant and writer for several organizations, including Time, The Washington Post, no big deal, Popular Science, Self, Shape, Women's Health, all the big magazines, Forbes, Runner's World, and Boston Magazine. She's also been a member of the fitness community, for 20 years as an indoor cycling instructor and an ambassador for Specialized and Lululemon. Dr. Pajednik received her PhD from the Tufts University Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy in Biochemical and Molecular Nutrition and Exercise Physiology, amazing school, 
one of the best. In fact, the only school nutrition school in the country. There's several programs, but Tufts has the only school. She also holds an an education master's in EDM in physical education and coaching from Boston University and a BS in cardiopulmonary and exercise science from Northeastern University. I'm also an alum of Northeastern, so we have so much in common. Um, Her research at Tufts was completed in the Nutrition, Exercise, Physiology, and Sarcopenia Laboratory at the USDA Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging, where she was awarded the Ruth L. Kirstein National Research Service Award by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Congratulations. She holds a Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist Certification from the National Strength and Conditioning Association and is board certified a board-certified health coach from the National Board of Health and Wellness Coaches. No big deal. Um, And she spent a lot of time talking to me today, and I'm so grateful. Um, I I follow her on Instagram, and she is the best best science, nutrition, health, exercise myth buster I've ever encountered. Um, She's so helpful, and everybody everybody needs her. So without further ado, Dr. Rachel Pajednik. And here she is, Dr. Rachel Pajednik. I'm going to start off by saying I tried cryotherapy recently. What did you think? I didn't know what to expect, but I loved it. And the the thing I loved the most was I felt like I could think more clearly afterward. Is that common? Yeah, for sure. So there's a lot of, first, thank you for having me on. Really excited to talk about of all course. the things that we're going to talk thank about today. And we're jumping right <laughs> into cryotherapy. Um, but yeah, cryotherapy is a really interesting one. You know, most of the data for cryotherapy is in cold water swimmers, um, and it's sort of translated into this cold plunge mania and cryotherapy. But one of the outcomes is that you get this sort of, you know, rush from feeling so cold, your nervous system is just really heightened and turned on. And that's why you get that sort of couple of moments of just complete you know, euphoria and mental clarity, Mm -hmm. um, because essentially that it's a fight or flight response where, you know, you're just completely freezing. And it's also fun. If you go to the restore cryotherapy, they put a music on for you where you can sort of dance around. And it's just this moment where you, you feel really challenged, you feel really excited. And then when you get out, you're like, what, that was incredible. So yeah, there is physiologic process behind it. Yeah. Is there anything, any science behind this, the song you choose? Because if for everyone who's listening, listening, who hasn't tried it, they, they say, okay, you're going to go in for three minutes, no more, no less. And we're going to choose a song that lasts three minutes. So choose the song you like. And I have a funny story about my song choice, but what's your song choice? Cause we always want to know. Um, the, the white stripes, seven nation army and the loved it another time I chose another song that was very mellow and it just 
I couldn't, I said, no, this is not the right song for this. No, you experience. need a hype up song. Totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The hype up song. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Mine's unstoppable by Sia. It's exactly three Love minutes long. It. Yeah. It's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But, yeah. yeah. And as, if anyone as, wants to see it, I posted this on Instagram so you can see me going in and coming out of the cryotherapy and I tagged Dr. Rachel Pajetnik in it because she inspired that post. And, and if you're a content creator, it's always an epic video because you get the steam that comes out when you open up the cryo yes. door. And so, yeah, it's always good, good content. Yes. But tell us more about the science behind it and the nervous system and who, who shouldn't use it, which there's some people who shouldn't use it. Obviously there's always a caveat and then who really benefits from it? Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the interesting things and one of the reasons that I started working with Restore, my primary appointment, my faculty appointment is at Norwich University, which is in central Vermont. It's a senior military college. And I recently transitioned to an online role with them creating some programming for active duty warfighters, essentially to help them train their soldiers, sailors, Marines, um, more effectively from an evidence-based perspective. And so I started working at Restore um, kind of in parallel with that because there was um, a real interesting overlap between these two populations where with you know, sports athletes or weekend warriors, like we all want to feel good. And if you can get on the podium and it's something like, you know, an Olympic vision, of course, we want to make sure that we're optimizing as best we can. But for the warfighters, this is something, you know, if they're not optimized, if they're not recovered, it could be, you know, a, a life or death situation if they're out in, in the field or, or deployed. And so mm -hmm. when Restore reached out to me and they said, hey, we've got all these modalities that we think are really great for human performance optimization and for recovery, but there's very little data on them. Would you come and work with us to help understand exactly what is going on? Enter cryotherapy, right? And everybody right now is just, you know, as we mentioned just a second ago, just nuts about cold plunging and all of the benefits mm -hmm. that could potentially be coming from that. Exactly. And so when you look at the data, there's actually very, very, very little data on cold therapy. The good thing is, to your point, most of the data is really is compelling and interesting from a recovery and performance perspective. Um, and most of the data, as I mentioned just a moment ago, actually is in cold water swimmers. Mm. So there's a population of hardcore people that mostly live in their, you know, sort of originated in the Scandinavian part of the world, Sweden, Finland, um, where they go and swim in the middle of the winter time. And the data started to emerge early on that they were happier. They had right. you know, sort of better, you know, um, muscular tone. They had, you know, better mental health. And I think people originally were just kind of like, oh, it's just because they're a little bit nuts and they're out there together in this freezing cold, but they've got this great community. And that's certainly part of it. But then there was a couple of groups that really started to dig into it and said, you know, what? I think something really interesting is going on here. And so again, the data is still in its infancy on the actual interventional data. So all of that data in those Scandinavian populations are what we call observational. So they go out 
and they collect a bunch of data on people that are already doing the thing. In this case, the thing mm -hmm. is swimming in cold water. And they said, oh, we're seeing all these really wonderful outcomes compared to the rest of the population. About 10 years ago, maybe, we started to see some interventional research, which means that we take people and put them into a cold situation, something like a cold plunge or cryotherapy, and start to study the outcomes that happen after that exposure. And so the data is, as I mentioned, again, still mostly in cold water immersion, mostly because it's easy, right? Like anybody can right. fill their tub up with cold icy water and... Um, it's easy to do that in the lab. Cryotherapy is new because it's a machine that is essentially fueled by liquid nitrogen. So that's what makes it really cold. And they're really expensive. Most academic labs don't have them. Again, come back to the idea that Restore yeah, was like, hey, will you come? Them? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> will you come and do some research, make this your sort of research playground? I was like, oh, cool. So cryotherapy machines is one of the machines that we have. So what is the data actually showing? It's limited, but in the sort of early sense, we see that it likely reduces inflammation. Um, so that's logical because essentially in your extremities, and if anybody's ever had an injury and you put ice on it, it's going to reduce that inflammation, keep the redness out, keep the swelling down. And the reason that that happens is essentially you stop blood flow from going to that very cold place and that inflammatory response is reduced. Now, remember, this can be good or bad because not right. all inflammation is bad. So I'm going to come back to that point in just a second. So it does seem to be that inflammation starts to go down. That's great. Um, the other piece that is really interesting is this mental health piece. And you mentioned Wim Hof and these breathing mm -hmm. techniques in really cold situations. And so you've experienced this. So when you go into the cryotherapy machine, what is the very first thing that happens to you? You just feel like <laughs> I'll say the first time I was so excited and and just I was thinking, okay, when am I gonna get cold? And yeah. it, it wasn't until the last minute of the three minutes. I wasn't cold until then. And I, I also thought to myself, if I have to say something, can they hear me? Yeah. <laughs> we can. There's a speaker. In, yes. <laughs> you're kind of in a it, it's like a an upright tanning bed that's Chamber, how I yeah, exactly. but it's the opposite it's cold um I, what else I don't know a closet what right. else can I compare it to or so con contrast that to have you ever experienced jumping into freezing cold water oh not here's the thing I had a hockey I played ice hockey yep um so I had a used to the cold I was I'm thinking of things as we're talking um, I had a tournament. I played for Charles River Girls Hockey in addition to my high school team back in the day, obviously. And we had a tournament at Waterville Valley, New Hampshire, which is way yeah, up well, there. Yeah. You know. Yep. <laughs> there there was a ton of snow. There had just been a snowstorm. My teammates and I were staying in a cabin that had no cell service and there was no hot water. <gasps> and people who play ice hockey all know that you are very sweaty and disgusting mm -hmm. after each game and we were playing I don't know four games in two days something like that and I have a lot of hair <laughs> which is the majority <laughs> of my shower and I, I just also relate <laughs> yeah I know you're you're in the 
the thick hair club um <laughs> it has its pros and cons yeah cold showers i put that in the con ice cold water um and i i knew i had to do it because i had just played ice hockey and it's disgusting and i was gonna do it again and it i don't i was young when this happened so all i kept thinking was you know just get through this but i remember that if that is part of your research it it's something you don't forget getting through yep yep Yes. So you're making a really, really important point in both cases, right? So in the cold water plunge, and this is the Wim Hof stuff is you get in there. And like the first thing that you want to do when you get into that cold water is basically your whole nervous system just goes on fire and you want to scream. And there's a a response called the diver's reflex, which essentially like Mm. everything just pulls in and you, you know, if you've ever jumped into a freezing cold you know, lake or something like you, your body just wants to like curl up into a ball and stop that cold from happening. But like you just said, if you can be in it and breathe through it and teach yourself to get comfortable with that extreme situation, this is actually one of the interesting responses that we're seeing with the cold therapy is that this is what we call a hormetic response, which means You do something extreme to your body in very, very small doses. And if it was in a very large dose, it could be problematic, right? So if you stay too long in a cold plunge, you're going to get hypothermia and that's Mm -hmm. not good, right? Eventually it could lead to death. But if you do it in very tiny doses, this is a stress response. Hormesis is the stress response to this acute stressor that seems to be having particularly good benefit on central nervous system regulation. Now, Central nervous system regulation is very hot in the wellness and fitness space with HRV monitors and Vegas tone Mm -hmm. and all these things. I just need to caution everybody that this data across the board is just so new, but it is really compelling to see how having that stress on the body eventually results in adaptation. And so that's what we think is happening with this cold exposure is that you have all these physiologic processes. And actually I need to, I need to myth bust here for one quick second because I yes, myth bust. Yeah. That's why you're here. One of my things (laughs) that I love to do. I keep seeing this. Um, I don't know if it's a TikTok or a reel or something where this person is speaking very authoritatively on cold therapy. And they're like, you have these things called cold shock proteins, not a thing. There's no no such thing as a cold shock protein. So if you ever see that video, just scroll right on by. That is not what is happening. It is not a thing. There is a thing called a heat shock protein, and we can talk about that. No such thing as a cold shock protein. What does happen are physiologic cascades and also likely a connection between the mind and the body through that central nervous system that is going to have this adaptive response. And so with the cryotherapy, which is really interesting, and you explained it beautifully, is you get in and you're not really cold right away, but by no. the end of that three minutes, you're you're shivering, you're like, I'm ready to get out. And so it's having a different effect from what's going on with the cold plunge, but it kind of ends in the same spot, right? Where you're core temperature gets really cold, your skin temperature gets really cold, and you have this stress to your system that we think is likely having a really similar response eventually to what's going on in that cold plunge. 
Now, what is the data actually showing? It's really limited in particularly I'll stick to cryotherapy. So again, we're seeming to have this mental response due to this tiny stress or hormetic um, exposure, which could be potentially really good and why you feel great when you get out for mental clarity, um, potentially for um, calming effects, maybe something similar to meditation as you um, do this repeatedly. Mm-hmm. We're also seeing pretty interesting effects on sleep, which, as we know, is very regulate, uh, uh, very tightly um, connected to central nervous system. So, if you've ever used something like an aura ring or an oop, uh, whoop, you'll know that they measure HRV, but they also measure sleep, and those two things are mm-hmm. really related. Um, so, it seems there's a really cool study that was done um, in runners. They went for a good hard run before at the end of the day, and then they jumped into a cryotherapy machine, same protocol as ours, three minutes, and they slept way better. So there's probably something Mm. going on there. And then there's potential, and this is a timing issue. So I said, I was going to put a pin in this and come back to it. There's potential for human performance optimization. And by that, I mean, recovery from an athletic event, potentially improved performance on a repeat event, but it depends on your activity. So this data is actually starting to emerge pretty conclusively is if you are an endurance athlete, runner, biker, something like that, cryotherapy probably is pretty good for you for recovery. Again, that inflammatory response, you don't inflame your system like crazy when you run or you bike. It's also probably pretty good in between repeat performances. So for example, let's say you're a runner and in a Mm -hmm. single day, kind of like what you were, or a hockey player, right? Where you were talking about, I've got four games in a day. If you cool Mm -hmm. off in between each of those games, you might have better performance because you're blunting that short inflammatory response so that you can do it again, you know, repetitively throughout the same day or the same weekend. Right. But where we're seeing some negative effects is if you do cryotherapy right after a strength training workout. So mm. I always see this and I'm, I have, I'm very agnostic about CrossFit, but I've been seeing them a lot that people will do this like crazy CrossFit workout. They're lifting really heavy. And then immediately after, you know, there are all, all these videos and reels of them jumping directly into a cold plunge. It's mm. actually a really terrible idea. And what we're seeing is because of that reduced inflammatory response, we're seeing reduced gains after a strength training event. Why is this specific to strength training? Well, if right, you've ever done strength training, flow. You, you got it exactly yeah, right. Inhibiting so, that blood flow. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep, exactly. So after you strength train, you've done a ton of damage to your muscle on purpose. Again, this is a hormetic response. We've stressed our muscle. We've done some damage and now we want our body to go back and fix it. Right. And so this kind of stress from strength training is really different than going for a run or going for a bike. You are specifically straining and stressing and damaging a muscle or a muscle group. And that inflammatory signal needs to get to your immune system so that your immune system can say, I'm going to go repair this damaged tissue. And that's where you get the benefit of the strength training. You break it down, tell your immune system to fix it. They bring in some amino acids and some proteins and they rebuild it so that it's bigger and stronger. If you blunt that response right after you strength train, we're actually seeing pretty dramatic reductions 
in strength. And in some cases it's up above sort of 10% of effectiveness. So yeah, we want to be really careful about after a strength training session to not go in cryotherapy or a cold plunge. So, okay. So you mentioned there were studies on swimmers and I'm now thinking I've spoken to a lot of divers in the military and there's all kinds of um, specialties in terms of physical, mental skill sets in the military. And um, a lot of the population I work with is, is people in the military who have these special skill sets. There's so many, but what, what could cryotherapy help with in terms of that level of performance, which is as we discussed earlier, the difference between a professional athlete and a military athlete, there's a lot of similarities, but the difference is one is a life or death situation in in a lot of cases. Um, And that presents itself as a strong possibility for one versus the other. So what are the differences or, you know, potential, I'll just say potential studies because we haven't studied all of this yet for members of our military? Yeah, it's such a great question and something that I care super deeply about. And the majority of our participants we're going to be using at Restore, we're hoping our military members, warfighters, soldiers, um, tactical athletes is the new term that we are using for them. And so like you said, it's really important. The difference between, you know, being on the podium or or coming home at the end of the day is really a consideration for cold therapy. There are a couple of really interesting areas of exploration that we're looking at. One is the recovery that we've just been talking about, right? So can you come back at the end of the day or the end of your shift, get into a cold plunge or a cryotherapy machine and be recovered and ready to go for the next day? Because most of their work that you're going to, you know, you think about when you're on deployment for the most part, It's going to be long days on your feet, carrying a lot of equipment. So it kind of mimics that aerobic exercise more than necessarily something like a strength training session. So that could be an area of interest there. The other that's really interesting is depending on the field of battle with which they are deployed, heat is always going to be a real Mm. problem as well. And so cooling is going to be a really important element. And One of the things that we're looking at is not only whole body cooling, but you might've also noticed at Restore, we have really localized cryotherapy areas. I did see that. Yeah. So it's like a little wand um, and you can put cold on very specific areas of the body to reduce inflammation. Let's say you have a knee injury or something like that. And Mm -hmm. you just want to take some inflammation down, you know, for whatever reason, that could be something that we really explore with our military as well. And not just for injury but for actual performance. So here's something that's really fascinating. And this data is emerging. It's out of a group here. I'm out in Northern California. It's a group here in Stanford. And they're looking at very targeted cold application for continued performance out in the field or on, you know, the field, whether you're a warfighter or the field or you're a football player. Um, And what they're finding is really fascinating is that if you cool in specific areas of the body, 
you can actually preserve performance and perhaps even enhance performance. They've done a couple of really interesting studies where they've looked at pull-ups specifically. And what they did is they had people do a max set of pull-ups and then they cooled in specific areas and then had them do the max pull-ups again. And the second time around, you would expect them to not be able to do as many. Um, on average, their athletes actually did more pull-ups after being cooled. There's some mechanism here that has to go with um, essentially cooling the muscle, not so much central core cooling. And the areas that they're investigating that they're showing have interesting data are the palms of the hands, the soles of the feet, and the forehead. Um, mm -hmm. And so by doing that, you can actually extract heat essentially from your muscles, keep them at the correct temperature to work effectively. Um, and that can potentially enhance performance. So that's another area that we're looking at besides the whole body immersion, also looking at very targeted and specific areas that can enhance performance during the actual act of whatever it is. So is that like, as you're exercising, you're generating heat in your yep. muscles. So you're going to be hotter than your baseline. And if you cool those muscles that are working, you're bringing them back to baseline so that they can continue to generate the, the force and strength that you need. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the theory here is that once your muscles get to a specific high temperature, they start to be more, they start to be less effective, right? So mm -hmm. again, there are physiologic processes that have to do with, um, mitochondrial processing of ATP, particularly using or not being able to use lactic acid as a fuel. It's a little bit complicated, but mm -hmm. you know, without going into, uh, a lecture about metabolism. Um, but the goal is to keep that muscle in just uh, the right zone of heat. So, you know, you, you're an athlete, you'll remember that like, you know, you don't want to be cold when you go and do your event, right? So that's not what we're trying right. to do. You, you want to warm, warm up. up. Yep, exactly right. And there is for specifically for mitochondria and muscle, there is a temperature range that they are just optimized and it's slightly warmer than 98 degrees Fahrenheit, right? So it's a little bit warmer than that. But once they get too hot, things start to go sideways. And so the goal with this cooling is to actually keep that temperature within the range that is optimized. So then the performance becomes, um, becomes optimized. Question. Is this optimal temperature di different in men versus women? Oh, such a good question. And <laughs> I believe this is not my actual field of expertise, but I believe the answer is yes. And this data is actually being investigated in a major way, particularly in soldiers. Um, and what they're finding, I saw this beautiful series of studies when I was at the ACSM meeting in June. Um, and they showed this in mice, they showed it in humans, is that females, particularly premenopausal females, so there's something funky going on here with estrogen and testosterone. Estrogen, but, yeah. Yeah, but premenopausal women are really, really, really good at dealing with higher temperatures than men are. So women are actually more optimized to deal with heat than are their male counterparts. How that's exactly working, they're not 100% sure. And they were doing these interesting mice studies. They were knocking out receptors for estrogen and testosterone and, you know, whatever. They're trying to figure that out. But so, you know, don't take this and be like, oh, like estrogen is going to be the, you know, we had to balance hormones. It's like, it's 
yeah, don't, a phrase don't that drives me bananas. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Um, but that there's something there that women, females, again, premenopausal females are much better at dealing with heat. Mechanism unknown, but hmm. something interesting. Yeah. My wheels are turning because <laughs> I feel like I'm not good at dealing with the heat at all. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you know, I think it's, um, there's also a mental component there too, right? So yeah. opposite side of the cold, you're either a cold person or you're a hot person, right? And so um, you're in Southern Florida now? Southwest Florida right Southwest now. Florida. Uh, um, it's a bajillion degrees there. Here's the thing. I don't know why I'm drawn to these tropical places. I lived <laughs> on the border of Texas and Mexico in 2010, 2011 when I was volunteering for AmeriCorps. It, it got up to 117 degrees. I really was not functioning optimally for yeah. sure at all <laughs> at yep. any point. No, same. I am not a hot person. But you know what it does is, is when you're from New England, there's kind of this bubble. I don't know how to explain it, but you're like, what's the rest of this world like? And you understand when you move to a place like Texas or Florida, you get this completely different perspective that pretty much the rest of the country has, or a lot of it. And you start to understand why people do the things they do. And if you are like, I had a friend who um, was, I met in deep South Texas. Uh, she was an amazing runner, Kristen, Kristen with a Y shout out. Um, Shout out. she's from Massachusetts, but we met in Texas. She lives in Colorado now. At one point she lived in Hawaii and was training for the Boston marathon. She trained in all this heat and humidity and killed it in Boston. Just the fastest yep. person I've ever seen who I know personally. Um, she was around three hours in one of the hottest I want to say it was, what year was it? 20, around 2014, 15, whichever year it was really hot around that time, um, where the front runners, the African men who were supposed to win, one of them dropped out at mile 15 due to the, the heat that year. And my friend, Kristen, smooth sailing because of her her heat training and um it just it blew my mind I was like yeah that heat it it allows you to deal with the cold in a different way or or kind of changes your mental thought process of temperature in a way that I can't explain. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And you know, those, that's all physiologic mechanism too. So it's, it's the same idea, just a different stressor, a different stimulus as the cold, right? So now you're applying the heat. You got to be out there. You got to be breathing. You got to figure that out. Um, Also, we see, as I mentioned, there's no such thing as a cold shock protein, but there are things (laughs) called heat shock proteins, which have really Mm -hmm. beneficial effect if activated again in these small doses. Um, And that certainly can be beneficial if you, you know, this is the same thing if you train at altitude, right? And you're going to go run a marathon at sea level is that your body will respond by creating more red blood cells when you are at altitude. So then you're sort of, you know, naturally doped when you get back to the 
um, sea level and you're able to carry more oxygen. The same thing will apply for heat. And in fact, so we have the cryotherapy machines that restore and we also have infrared saunas. Yes. And- I want to know more about that too. Yeah. So the infrared sauna data is kind of the same about infrared sauna and cryotherapy versus their counterparts. So the infrared sauna data is really slim, but there's pretty compelling data on Finnish saunas and in steam saunas. Um, So these are the old school ones. You know, you remember these, like you go to a ski lodge or, you know, you're a New England girl, you go up North and everybody's got this, you know, dry steam room that you can Mm -hmm. throw water on the rocks, right? And it will steam up the the space. So most of the data is actually done on that in Finland. So same population as the cold water swimmers. Um, And what we see is that utilizing that heat can actually be beneficial for athletes or warfighters that are going to be in that heat situation or slightly Mm. less. So for Kristen, when she was training in the super, super hot, you know, over a hundred degree humid weather down in Texas and got to Boston. And for us in Boston, it's 90 degrees and humid and we're all dying. Mm -hmm. And she's like, Hey, this is old hat for me. Like, this is how I train anyways. And she didn't feel like it was an added stressor for her. Um, So it could be a mental component. It could be all these physiologic processes that have been adapted for her in that cold and that heat training. Um, And so we see that with sauna as well as we can use that And interestingly, sauna, um, particularly Finnish sauna, has actually been shown to be what we call an exercise mimetic, which means it has a lot of that same physiologic stress effect on the cardiovascular system that aerobic exercise has. Now, without getting into the deep weeds on, you know, infrared sauna versus exercise, they're not exactly the same or Finnish sauna versus exercise and you can't get it in a finished sauna, even though you're sweating like crazy or an infrared sauna and be like, oh, I just did the same thing as, you know, running five miles. It's not the same. You're not burning the same calories. You're not stressing the same energy systems, but it does seem to be that that cardiovascular response likely due to vasodilation, nitric oxide release, um, increased heart rate, all of those things are going to have a really beneficial effect on the heart muscle and the vascular system, which in these Finnish studies, which are really interesting and huge, and they kind of just keep coming out, um, are showing observationally that there seems to be significant benefit on cardiovascular risk for cardiovascular disease for people that do sauna. And I'm going to, I'm going to obviously read all of these studies now. Um, but (laughs) you, you, I heard you emphasize observationally. And I want you to tell the listeners, how do you know a research study? Because a lot of them get quoted, misquoted. Um, How do you know it's a legitimate research study that we, we can actually use for humans? Such a good question. And really, really important in this space. So I mentioned just a moment ago, we were talking about mice studies and we're talking about observational studies and interventional studies. So there's a hierarchy essentially of scientific literature that starts, if we're just talking about humans and I'll come back to animals in just a second, but if we're just talking about humans, there's essentially a hierarchy of the way that we conduct studies And they typically will start with what we call population or cohort or observational studies. So I mentioned this just a few moments ago is that this is the kind of study where you go out into real life situations and you say, what are these people doing? What are they eating? 
you either follow them for a specific period of time, this large, you know, tens of thousands of people, and you watch them for 10 or 15 years, or you get their medical records and you look backwards and you say, Mm -hmm. what have these people been doing and what diseases did they come up with? What, you know, mental health outcomes, cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, these kinds of things. So that's an observational study. Now that's a cool study because you get these huge populations of people that you can look at. So it's like I said, you know, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, generations of people. So there's a beautiful um, cohort study that happens right in Massachusetts and Framingham. Framingham. The Framingham study, the The nurses nurses health study, all of these studies are um, observational and they follow this cohort. I think Framingham's in its fifth generation now. So mm-hmm. they've been following families of lots people. Lots of nurses. Over time. Yep. Lots of nurses. There's a physician study. So lots of studies that look at people over time. Super, super strong study designed to understand what we call, this is a really important word, associations between lifestyle patterns, exposures, and these health outcomes. Now, I'm sure that your listener has heard this phrase before, but it's worth putting an exclamation point on. Association is not causation, right? So association is not causation. So what that means is that there's a relationship we think between a particular input, let's call it going into a finished sauna and a particular output, let's call it cardiovascular disease, right? That's interesting. And as a scientist, What I would say about that is fascinating. That is hypothesis generating, right? Mm. So the hypothesis that I would take from the Finnish study is you have this big population of people, the more times they go in the sauna a week, the less likely they are to have cardiovascular disease. I'm an interventionist, which means now it's my job to go in and say, we're going to take a smaller group of people and it gets complicated because am I picking men? Am I picking women? Am I picking mm-hmm. young women? Am I picking older men? You know, but I take a population of people and I expose them to sauna and then I follow them for a specific period of time to understand outcomes. Now, let me dig one layer deeper because this is where all the sort of like biohacking and everything else starts to, you know, before you say come that, into play. you mentioned, um, causation and association association and there's a really great example of how we we shouldn't fall into that trap can you remember what it is it's on the top of my tip of my tongue it's like in the summertime yep, the more I know people exactly, yeah. who buy ice cream end up yeah the association is um if you look at, so what you want to do when you look at associations is essentially you create a graph and you have an X axis, which is the horizontal axis on the bottom. And you have a Y axis, which is the vertical axis that goes up and down. And what you can see is in the association that you're talking about is that ice cream consumption is almost perfectly correlated with murder and homicide. Yes. That's what it was. (laughs) Yes. It's such a great example. Yep. And to your point, this is actually getting right back to South Texas and has nothing to do with Texas, but it has to do with the heat is that more people buy ice cream when it's really hot. And also heat is very agitating to the soul. And so more Mm. people commit homicide in the summertime. 
That's not to say that these are the same people, that the same person that's buying a lot of ice cream is eating or is uh, exactly you know, they have going nothing out running. to do with each other. Right. So that is a really beautiful example is that association is not causation. And we have to be super careful about these outcomes. So this is why these um, studies are what we call hypothesis generating. And then an interventionist goes in and says, I'm going to take this specific thing. I'm going to expose this specific population to it. And I'm going to see exactly what happens. So now there are sort of two layers that happen even within the intervention studies. The first is I, so I'm a biochemist. So I really care about, and I've mentioned them several times, these physiologic cascades that occur during some kind of an exposure. I'll give you an example. In a study that we're doing for cryotherapy um, at Restore, I'm specifically looking at inflammatory pathways. And by that, I mean, I'm looking at five or six, five or six different, what we call cytokines to see mm -hmm. if they activate each other or activate independently because of a three minute exposure to cryotherapy, right? And so what I will do is I will take somebody's blood I'll put them in the cryotherapy machine for three minutes and then I'll take their blood right afterward and see what happens and see what changed, right? Love it. There's that, but then you can take it steps further. And this is what we're actually doing with cryotherapy is I'm going to have people now expose themselves for 30 days, three times a week to cryotherapy. And I want to see not only what happens right before and right after every time they get in the chamber, but then what happens, this is adaptive response over 30 days and over time to see if there is, you know, a clinical outcome like reduced, um, you know, changes in metabolism or changes in heart rate variability. We're going to be looking at some um, biometrics as well. So this is the part with intervention science, which is exciting and different mm -hmm. from observational science is that we can actually see whether or not our intervention is having a specific effect on that particular pathway, outcome, whatever. So now we can say with some level, some degree of confidence, although we don't ever, you know, definitively say anything in science, which always drives everybody bananas, but we can say cryotherapy causes fill in the blank results in inflammation. And this is the caveat, super important in XYZ population. Not every population is generalizable to all other populations. We just talked about this a second ago with heat handling is mm -hmm. that premenopausal women, for whatever reason, potentially due to hormones, have a very different effect to heat than postmenopausal women. So you can't lump all people together and this is why the science is so hard to explain and to communicate and to keep up with all the trends, because you can't say just because this happens in one population, it is going to be a cause of the same thing in another population. I'll put one more exclamation point on this. A lot of the data that we have in this sort of wellness health space comes not from humans, but from animals and in some cases, even from cells of animals or humans, because we can't investigate some things in humans that we can in animals. So for example, if I wanted to look at cryotherapy and I wanted to understand specifically what is happening in a very, very targeted part of the brain, 
I can't stick a biopsy needle into the brain of a human after I do a cryotherapy session, but I can yeah. take a mouse, expose them to the cold, take their brain out, and then start to investigate what's going on in the actual physiologic processes. So to your original question, which is how do we know what kind of studies are reliable for these outcomes that we're looking for? You really do need to go and understand how the study was done. Was it in humans? Was it an intervention? Or was it a population level or observational study? Because that's going to be able to tell you the difference between, is it an association? Is it a causation? And if it's a causation, is it in the population that is relevant to you? Right. And also who funded it? Yeah. So it, so this is where things kind of get complicated and I'm, I'm definitely, I'll be super honest. I'm definitely towing that line right, right now with restore. Right. So this is something that I think is, it's really worthwhile to, to, to talk about is yes, we do want to be thoughtful and careful about looking at who funds the studies. And I, you know, have to disclose in all of the studies that I do with restore that I am affiliated with them and that, at the end of the day, they're trying to sell cryotherapy, right? And that certainly does present a conflict of interest. But the other thing that I would say is that the only place right now that good science can get funding is from essentially um, government dollars. So from the NIH or even potentially from the DOD to do independent research um, without external funding. In the space of exercise and nutrition, which is the space that I off that I operate in, there is minimal, so tiny dollars that are being allocated to these studies, which drives me bananas because I'm like, don't we care right about there preventive and proactive health? Like I care so deeply about that. And I can't tell you how many times I I just did a series of studies looking at CBD, right? Because it's everywhere. You can buy it all over the place. Do you know how many studies in humans looking at human muscle and performance there are utilizing CBD? Five. No, five. There are wow. Five, five, five studies, five studies looking at CBD. And we have a billion dollar industry selling CBD products, drinks, tinctures, gummies, mm -hmm. all these things to people, right? And this was driving me bananas. So I was like, I'm going to go and I'm going to start a series of studies. And I can't tell you the amount of regulation that I had to thread needles to get funding. I got a little baby grant, basically showed that CBD does nothing. Sorry, team. Um, and that post that study, they were like, we're not going to fund this anymore. Like, we just don't, we don't care. So that line of research kind of like just went away. So this is where people like me, and this is, I think of myself as kind of like a Trojan horse, Right. I yeah, you're a total yeah. pioneer and <laughs> you, don't know you deserve that. a lot of props for this because <laughs> for example, because I've worked on three, three weight loss studies and they all had different funding and they're all completely different types of studies. Um, but I always asked about the funding and it's so difficult to, to fund, to get funding for any type of nutrition or exercise study because the money is elsewhere. And I'll also add that I do research on everything that piques my interest or people ask about 
I was looking at the leadership of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics uh, because, you know, at our conferences, it's always kind of a conflict, like who's sponsoring what and what's you have to disclose, right? You disclose. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, You're still, that just proves how ethical you are in your job that you are disclosing everything. Now I went to the AMA, the American Medical Association website, and I was interested who's like, who's running the AMA? I'm just curious Mm -hmm. because I also looked at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and what their backgrounds were and you know, how can we elevate nutrition to the status of the AMA? And if you go to learn more about each board member, you have to pay to read their disclosures and their conflicts. They're at the AMA? Seriously? Yeah. I actually didn't know that. On the website. And I thought, oh, wow. So you just gave us your disclosure for free. Yep. As one should. <laughs> That's the ethical thing to do. Um, and we don't know what conflicts our decision makers of medicine have without paying. And I think that that, so inherently what that does, which is problematic, is it automatically makes people skeptical of the science because we're rightfully so feeling like if let's say i don't know big sugar funds a study and shows that sugar is actually good for you right we're like automatically skeptical like well of course right but right. i will say around in the back side of this i will say especially if you have an academic appointment which is one of the reasons why i'm you know really adamant about making sure that i'm always working with academia is that internally we have, you know, mounds of paperwork that we need to do to make sure that we don't have conflicts of interest, that we disclose them, that we have oversight from IRB boards and we've got, you know, um, regulatory boards on our research side that are, you know, constantly hounding us and making sure that we're spending money appropriately, that we're doing our statistics appropriately. And so there is a lot of checks that people I think don't see. That being said, we just, uh, my partner um, at Restore, the chief medical officer, Rich Joseph, and I just wrote a, p- a paper for Stat News talking about how the wellness industry specifically needs to get better at A, doing their own research because there's money there. Let's be mm-hmm. completely honest. Like these companies are making a ton of money and they're making a ton of money making claims that they really can't back up. But if we band together and we do things, like I said, become the Trojan horse and go into these spaces and say, I recognize that you are a company, you're trying to sell cryotherapy, and wouldn't it be awesome if you could actually prove that or demonstrate that the cryotherapy is doing what it says that it's doing? And I will tell you, consumers are really excited and interested in that because right now, right, we even have to start though, somewhere, we have to start somewhere, right? Even though there is, you know, you can raise your eyebrows at like, oh, well, Restore just funded this study on cryotherapy, right? Like that's probably going to come out in their favor. One of the things that I said 
when I got the job is I'm not coming in to rubber stamp your products, right? Like I'm coming right. in to help you evaluate them and to understand where they work, where the limitations are, what populations they work in. And I will say credit to this company. And, you know, we've had amazing reception from a lot of CEOs of big companies that you've heard of to this stat news article to say, yes, we need to start doing this. And what I think that that will help to do is if we do this well as the scientists that are on staff, which I truly believe we can do, it will start to help the consumer, help the clients understand where's the BS, who can be trusted, you know, what are the outcomes that I'm looking for? And if we're really honest as, as scientists, what are the limitations? So for example, it restore, I'm like, don't come and do cryotherapy after you do your strength training. Like it's a terrible right, idea. That's so good to know. <laughs> do it at another time. Do it the day after, do it the morning of, right? But don't come. And that helps the consumer to say, okay, I've got this goal. I want to get really big and strong. And I also want to recover well. So when can I time this appropriately rather than just have, you know, like, oh, cold plunges are really good for you because cold shock proteins, right? Like we have to start controlling the narrative. Buzzword, not even a complete sentence. Miracle beans. Yeah, miracle (laughs) beans. Exactly. Totally. Magic. Yeah. We have to start controlling the narrative. And the way that we do that is to bridge the gap between academia and and restore, well, restore too, but academia and, you know, industry essentially and say, this is the science that we're doing. We're publishing it in the academic literature. You can look at our methods. You can look at our results. You can see what the limitations were of these studies, and you can see how we're using them in our marketing and in the ways that we interface with our clients. And I think that, at least I'm hoping, back to the point of funding, will help to create a more informed consumer so that they understand where to go, how to interpret this stuff, um, and also help them to make the right choices for themselves and not just be like, oh, well, they funded their own study. So obviously that's a problem. So that's what I'm hoping to do here. Trojan horse. Well, here's the thing. What you're hoping to do and what I'm hoping to do is I think the same thing. And your experience and background is so important also for this major um, defense issue we're having in yeah. America, which all of this research ties into that you're doing. Um, our, you know, this isn't this isn't new. I at one of our fancy food and nutrition conference expo, um, the big conference for dietitians. At one of our conferences, I always go to the the military nutrition sessions and, um. One of them several years back, one of the lecturers was talking about how our our young people are not qualifying to to be in our military to even try. So what's the latest on that? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'll start by just saying that we currently, a couple of students, myself and a couple of colleagues are actually writing a paper right now to understand supplementation practices and efficacy in warfighters. And the data is dire in the sense that like, there's just hardly anything on this particular population, what works, what doesn't. Um, You're probably really familiar with the IOC statement for sports athletes that basically show that there are five efficacious 
supplements that work for sport performance. And there isn't anything like that for warfighters because there isn't enough data. So but that's something so that we're targeted. And, and to your point, yeah, is that these, these folks, I think the data is 74% of our military members report using dietary supplements, right? So 74% of them are using it, but we have no idea whether or not it's working, if it's helping, if it's harmful. Um, right. And as you mentioned, the supplement industry is just kind of the wild west anyways, right? Like there's exactly very little limit, you know, little regulation. You don't know where you're getting from. If you are a warfighter or you're an athlete, just put a, a you know, a little PSA out there is always make sure that your supplements are third-party tested and that you know exactly what is in them because we're finding more and more. And I think you actually posted something about this the other day that there was, you know, a study, <laughs> yeah, a study that was recently done looking at herbals and how there are actually a bunch of banned substances in these products yes. that you get, that you get at a reputable, you know, you get it at GNC or you get it at CVS and those, you know, GNC and CVS aren't product testing. Like they're just selling the product, right? right? So, and especially for our, for our elderly, the, the memory booster and yeah. the brain health, um, you have to be very careful about that. And the, um, also using a supplement for not what is it is intended for yeah. is also a problem. And that happens yeah. a lot. Totally. And specifically for our military, that can be really, you know, problematic, as it can for a sports athlete, is that if you take something and there's a banned substance in there, you're in trouble, right? For a sports athlete, they're banned mm -hmm. from their sport. For a military warfighter or a tactical athlete, you can be, you know, essentially fired or at least, you know, reprimanded in a way that can be really damaging to your career. So this is, you know, really important that we understand this. And yet, this is also sort of, you know, a problem within the larger system of the military that you're talking about is because people are so underprepared in the United States to serve, you know, we get people that, you know, are volunteering and they're, you know, dedicating their life to serving this country. And they are, you know, like precious gold because there are mm -hmm. so few people that can backfill. And so they're trying really hard to stay optimized. They're trying to make sure that they recover. They're trying to make sure that they can move through their entire career. And to your point of how dire that is, um, I believe the latest statistics basically show that less than 20% of the eligible of the population um, that is eligible to serve. So that means, you know, roughly between the ages of 18 to 23 or so, less than 20% of them are actually eligible due to lack of fitness due to obesity, due to, you know, uh, legal issues, run-ins with the law. Um, and this is the even more dire part is that only about 3% of them actually want to serve. So of that 20%, That's a really now, small number. Yeah. Now we're taking it down to 3%. And here's the other thing is they're, they're amazing, amazing, amazing humans that everybody else is mm. fighting for. Right. So this is the problem is, you know, you get these people that are motivated, they're excited to go and serve, they're physically fit, they're ready to go. And every industry wants that candidate that's 18 to 23 years old, right? And so 
This is where we whittle down and they say in the military, it's essentially it ends up being 1% of the population ends up actually serving. They call themselves the one percenters. Mm. Yeah. And so this is something that this is, you know, this is just a public health issue. Like this is just a, a real crisis where public health and national service, uh, national security really intersect. Um, a really amazing, also phenomenal scientist. Um, her name is Allison Brager. If you don't follow her already, she's in, um, she does uh, work with soldiers. She's in the army. Her area is sleep. Yeah. She's just, you know, amazing. She is basically starting this campaign that fitness is national security, right? Like those two things are hand in hand. And this goes to the idea of what can we do to help once we get that very, very small percentage of the population into the military, what can we feed them? What supplements do they potentially need to take? What recovery modalities are going to be most helpful? And after they retire and they get out of the military, what wraparound services can we continue to provide them? So that- Very important. Yep. We have a VA system that is financially solvent and we have- Soldiers that come home and feel supported and they don't have the mental health issues due to everything that they have done for our country. So when I think about working for Restore and I think about these modalities and I think about the you know nutritional supplementation, I'm really thinking of it from a perspective, you know, my lens right now is really like, would I love to help you and me as, you know, like weekend warrior athletes that are, you know, trying to stay healthy for the long term and want to feel really good about ourselves hundred percent. But Applying this to a population that needs this, you know, support so desperately across their lifespan because of what they volunteered to do for the rest of the country. Um, this is really front of mind for me. And what's the solution? I mean, it's multi-pronged like everything in public health, right? So um, I have colleagues that are working in this space from making sure that PE is taught in kindergarten all the way through you know, 12th grade and that people are excited from a very young age to be active and find the thing that they love to do to people that are working on the dietary guidelines to making sure that those are, you know, communicated effectively to schools so that they have the right food um, that is being served in the schools all the way out to, you know, like I just mentioned is, you know, there's this amazing initiative at the VA called the Whole Health Initiative where, you know, they're using a health coaching model essentially to help people mm-hmm. be and feel supported in their health journey after they retire from the military. And these things can be applied whether or not we're talking about the military or the general population, right? So we know that disease rates, chronic disease of cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, cancer, um, are only increasing because of our lifestyle. So how can we start to move that needle I think the the short answer of all of that is prevention is key um, and starting young and starting early and making sure that we use that upstream approach where we are helping people before they get in a situation that we need to reverse course. Um, I think that's, that's the big part of this. Can I tell you about an argument I had? Yes. <laughs> this goes back to Texas. So as part of AmeriCorps, I helped to bring in wellness, health and wellness to, um, the idea of public school system. It's, it's a, it was at the time pretty new. It was started by teach for America. Um, and 
I I got there, you know, drove down from Boston. I'm on the border of Mexico and I'm speaking to, there was some kind of pre-school year mixer. So I was preparing to be the the wellness coordinator at my, at my little um, school in San Juan, Texas. And it, we didn't even have every grade. We had kindergartners and maybe first graders and then seventh and eighth grade and and I want to say sophomores or juniors so I had different age groups and I hadn't started yet but there was a an event where the teachers and the staff and the volunteers were meeting and I spoke with I won't be specific but I'll I spoke with someone who started the whole program leadership and I, That's leadership yeah leadership That's, you spoke with leadership yes. yeah leadership a very influential person in leadership and I said what do you think is the most important subject that is going to be taught or has been taught in these schools and he said math and science and I said oh what about physical education and he said no, Couldn't care um, not definitely, definitely not as important. Um, and I just, I thought, Ooh, what bad judgment this will backfire someday. He has since been fired. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, 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 to me, it comes back to the mindset of, you know, is it capitalism? Is it, how are we being most productive. And if you look at certain research and certain numbers, some people will say, oh, math and science are the most important. I don't know what research that is. Someone saw it at some point. Those are very important. We do a lot of math and science in nutrition and exercise research. It's part of everything we do all day. But if we're not moving our bodies and we don't, we're, we're not thinking that's important and it's a valuable asset to have and do and be every day, then we're more likely to have every type of disease and our brains won't work and our temperatures will be off and we won't be able to cope with things like pandemics and have immune systems that work and can fight off, you know, awful, awful viruses and bacteria. And exercise is the base of what we need every day to function. So that was my, my thing, um, that I have stuck to, which is don't tell kids they can't move. Yeah. It will backfire for everyone. (laughs) Totally. And it backfires in the short term too. So there's pretty compelling data to show that if kids move, like during math class, if they are moving around and throwing a ball and standing on one leg, they do the math better. So this idea that exercise is just sort of like a fun way to, you know, have a recess or to burn calories or whatever. I always tell people stop exercising to lose weight, right? Like that's not the point. Mm. The point is who cares, right? Like the point about exercise is all of these Hormetic responses coming back to exactly what we started this conversation about stress buzzword hormetic. I love it. Hormesis, <laughs> hormesis. Um, all of these hormetic responses that 
little bits of stress are really, really good for your body. They're good for your mental health. They're good for disease prevention. Um, immune system is super important. The, the, the data on, you know, fit people and severe COVID um, infections is pretty interesting. So yeah, I just think it's so short-sighted to say we're going to cut recess or we're going to cut PE to improve math and science time or skills when we know that that PE, that exercise, that movement only enhances the math and science. And, you know, back to the idea of if we have people that are not moving their bodies, yeah, maybe they can, you know, do their times tables, but, you know, now we have a national security issue. Now we have a public health crisis. Now we have a mental health crisis because people don't know how to cope with being stressed and attached to their screens all day. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think exercise, if I, I am a nutritional biochemist, I focus on exercise physiology. So the intersection between the two, and if I, if I was forced to pick one to optimize exercise or nutrition, it would be a tough call, but I think I would have to go with exercise because I think it has from a whole body, you know, health effect I think it's more potent. Which the mind is in. The mind is in the body. Yep. <laughs> There's yep. no separation. So nope. I agree. I I've coached, you know, I'm a health coach too. I'm a registered dietitian, but I'm also a health coach. Um, I did that. I did health coaching on a, a huge international successful Dana Farber study for five years, Dana Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. And one of the things, you know, I can't disclose any results because we don't have them yet and I'm not allowed to anyway, but one of the things I noticed about the, it was all women in the study, women who had breast cancer um, and are, were hoping to prevent a recurrence. One of the things I noticed was um, when it came to those who exercised and had that ingrained in their day-to-day -day or just general lifestyle values, um, it, it had a more positive effect on their diet. So yep. when you move your body, which, you know, as you've said before, and this helped one of my, um, one of my study participants so much, she said, I hate exercise. I don't want to do it. And I said, oh, you're from my mom's generation who was told, Don't, you, you're you're not allowed to exercise. That's for the boys. If you sweat, that's a bad thing. It's uncomfortable. That that was what, what my mom was told. Yep. Don't do it. Right. How ridiculous. So, so stressful. I said I was trying to work on her this participant's mindset for so long. And I said, all right. Did you know that any kind of movement, because for her, it was a, a word choice thing. Mm -hmm. I said, maybe, maybe exercise is not a good word for you. What if you move your body? And she said, oh, and over time, she told me I signed up for a yoga class, which to me wasn't exercise yeah. the way I'm thinking intense, you know, Jane Fonda or, <laughs> you know, fitness guru, P90X. Yeah. Some people think of exercise as that's all there is, but it can be 
going for a walk, hanging out in the pool and moving your body, dancing, singing and dancing in your kitchen. If you're moving your body, you are then allowing the things in your body to move, which after working on the the research study and explaining why exercise was so important and not really having an actual answer with data to back it up, I started to think, why is exercise so important for cancer prevention, which again, is not totally proven, but we know it helps. Yeah. Um, and I started to think, oh, when you exercise, what happens? You know, the scientific term one is peristalsis. So your, your bowels start moving, you start digesting more. So you're going to excrete either through urine or, or feces, you know, number two, um, or through your sweat, you're not allowing the toxins that are in your body to be there as long. Yeah, sure. And also with exercise, you know, this, again, coming back to this hormetic effect is that you're stressing your system. You're turning cells over more quickly. You're teaching your body to deal with damage and come in and rapidly fix it, which at the end of the day is, you know, this is 30,000 foot level cancer and I'm not a cancer researcher, but is essentially you start with DNA damage and it becomes a tumor eventually. Right. And so if your body is prepped to handle that damage, which is what exercise teaches it to do. In addition to, you know, excreting all these things that could potentially be harmful. Um, you know, you're, you're in a much better position to fend off some kind of, you know, unfortunate and, you know, most, most cancer is, you know, it can be environmentally induced, but also it's just like winning the terrible lottery, right? Like, it's just like, why does it happen to some people and not to others? Um, but if you can teach your body to deal with that damage, and that's something that exercise does, you stress your body out, you have this inflammatory response, it goes in, it cleans out all the damaged old cells, it brings up, you know, new amino acids, new fats, whatever you need to replenish those cells and regenerate them. You get rid of the old the damaged cells in a more effective way. That's going to be, that is going to be protective against cancer. Right. I call it your inner army. It's totally, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, it's, you know, we don't have control over, we really don't have control over the in- environment, you know, state, like large, your average yeah. at large, it's a group effort. Um, so let's say the env- environment is the cause for a certain tumor prevention gene getting turned off. And then that's why you have a term- tumor that's growing. Um, if you have your built up inner army that is strong and fits and working well and communicating, um, then you're more likely to, to fight it off and to be able to handle any drugs that you need to take to fight it off and to maintain your muscle mass and to have more mental, mental resilience along with the physical resilience, which I think goes together. Um, but you can, you have a much better defense and that's what you have power over. Yep. Absolutely. Totally. 
it's one of these words, you know, it's funny working in the wellness space. And I know that you operate in this space too. And it's a word that drives me bananas is this, this idea that you can boost fill in the blank, X, Y, Z, whatever, you know, um, I have chosen to word, and this is a kind of a controversial word too, and it's getting a little bit overused, but I've, I've chosen to start using the word optimize and I've used it a lot this while we're talking. And the reason for that is you can't really boost anything beyond your human capacity, but you can take it to your human capacity. Right. And that's how I think about optimizing. Right. So I'm not saying like, I'm going to be, you know, 110%. I had a, um, I had a professor once that said, there's no such thing as 110%. Like there's no such thing as 110% effort. You can't get 110% on an exam. There's only 100%. Either you did the best, you got the best, you were in the word optimized or you were, right? Yeah, exactly. And so I love this idea of the little army is that like, you got to build up your little army and optimize. So when you have some kind of an exposure or whatever, that you are able to deal with it. And this comes back to these micro stressors that we have, you know, like you have adaptation, you start to build that little army when you exercise potentially, and be very careful about this folks, but exercise in the heat, right. Or you get in a cryotherapy chamber or you, um, you know, have some kind of, uh, you eat foods that are high in antioxidants. Exactly. Raspberries. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I love hydrated. Yep. Stay hydrated. Yes. Also very important in the heat is to stay hydrated and reduce the alcohol too. Yeah, totally. That destroys the alcohol. Not a good choice. (laughs) doesn't help with anything athletically yeah and you also yeah there's I mean there's so many little things that can destroy our cells or weaken them um and I've been a nerd about this since high school when I would draw the phospholipid bilayer on, on my little bio papers um, and get into all the details. Of, oh, what can go in? What can come out? Oh, this is fascinating. We have control over this. Um, but you, so you, you offer so many opportunities for other people to learn about these things. And I noticed on your website, which I wasn't surprised about at all, um, which is rachelpajednik.com, um, <laughs> which I'll link in the show notes. Um, you are now offering a course that yeah. has some CEUs for some people who are health coaches and personal trainers. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. And, so this is an opportunity that I see and dietitians, I think and dietitians. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I, you know, I have been, um, you know, a member of the fitness and wellness space first before I even got into the academic side of this world is at 18 years old. And for those of you that are in the Boston area, you might remember this. I was a personal trainer down at Bally's Total Fitness in Porter Square, like way down that Porter mm-hmm. Square, you know, uh, escalator, if you take the T out there. Um, and yep. I just loved, you know, I was an athlete in high school. I just loved movement. It was just sort of, you know, fun for me. I got into nutrition a little bit later because they overlap so well. Um, but I love the fitness and wellness space. And I, you know, I myth bust a lot in this space and I try to take, you know, a good solid science communication um, relationship and strategy with my colleagues in this space, because I feel that they are, you know, speaking of an army, like they're doing all of the amazing on the ground work. They're running incredible classes. They're making people happy. They're bringing people into spaces that they feel comfortable. 
to get sweaty, you know, like, wouldn't it be awesome if your mom had been exposed to that, you know, way back in the day of really good people (laughs) doing really good work on the ground there, you know, but the problem is, is that in the wellness industry, you know, for the most part, especially if you have a certification type of role, group fitness instructor or personal trainer, even health coaches is you're trained to do that modality, right? You're trained to be a really good spin instructor. You're trained to be a health coach, which I would call a behavior change expert, right? You're trained Definitely. to be, uh, you know, to, you know, work with somebody and teach them how to squat really well, but you're not necessarily trained about all of these nutrition pieces that overlap with that. There's just not enough time in the training and there's a need right. for it because clients are often asking those trainers this Mm -hmm. question, right? And I will say I'm developing almost an exact replica of this for the military right now. I'm super excited. We just got curriculum approval. Yeah. So at Norwich, we're developing a four course curriculum for people that want to do this in the tactical space. Um, So this is a thread that runs through, you know, everything that I do is that I'm an educator. I'm passionate believer in the people doing good work on the ground. And I just want them armed with right with good information and the right resources. So they know where to go to get more good information. So that's where these courses came about. There's a long one. It's a 12 module course on basically nutrition 101. Um, so yeah. we take a deep dive into a exactly, lot of info. Yeah, a lot of info. If you <laughs> remember, yeah, it's, it's a doozy. Um, you can take a shortened version of that course. And then I've got a couple, one is specifically looking at the gut and the brain, what we mm-hmm. do and importantly, do not know about mm-hmm. what the gut we and don't the brain, know a lot. we don't know a lot. <laughs> um, and then there's also one on exercise and supplementation. So those are awesome. two little mini courses. Um, and I'm hoping to have a few more that are coming out. Um, across the space. So, you know, these are great for health coaches. I've worked done a ton of work with physicians and nurses who also don't get this information, you know, so important. As a, yeah, super important. We know that this is, you know, a huge risk as we've been talking about with chronic disease prevention. Um, and so, yeah, health coaches, personal trainers, fitness folks, as well as any um, health coach or healthcare folks that are interested in just expanding their knowledge. But basically, it's exactly the same course that I teach at Harvard, at Simmons, at Norwich, um, that you get it at a very discount rate and you also get CEUs for it. So check it out. Love it. Well, you know, I could pick your brain all day and I've <laughs> taken up a lot of your time. So I want to thank you so much, um, especially because I'm getting back into academia and I'll talk to you more about that offline. I'm very excited very about it. And um, so everyone check out rachelpajednik.com. I will link it in the show notes and I will talk to you soon. Yeah, great. And also reach out on social. So I'm at Rachel Pajednik on all the socials and I love using those channels for science communication. So that's the majority of what I do when I'm online. Yes. And I often um, link to Dr. Pajednik through my social, which is at Major League Nutrition. Um, So find either one of us and follow both of us. And thanks for listening. My absolute pleasure. Hey guys, if you know me at all, you know, I love to start my day with strong, good quality, organic coffee. I'm a big iced coffee drinker, mainly because of two reasons. One, I don't like to wait for things. And two, there's no way I'm letting my coffee stain my teeth. Therefore, I have to give a shout out to Alice, the creator of my new favorite straw, Sipify. We met in the Boston Businesswomen Inner Circle group and clicked instantly. Basically, she wrote to the group about her new product, the Sipify Straw. 
a straw that you can safely drink hot or cool beverages with that's made of stainless steel and food-safe silicone. I told her I thought her product was not only helpful to prevent yellow teeth. The main reason she invented this straw was actually to solve her problem of whitening her teeth at the dentist and then wanting to drink hot, not iced coffee afterward, which didn't make sense. She needed a straw for that. Alice told me her dentist suggested she switch to iced coffee so she could drink it with a straw and prevent staining her teeth. But she likes her coffee hot, and you can't put a regular straw in a hot drink. Ugh. So what's a girl to do? She literally invented a straw. This woman is amazing. The Sipify straw not only prevents stains, but it cools hot beverages just a bit as you sip, so you can sip comfortably. As a medical professional, this melts my heart because another amazing benefit is the possibility of Sipify straws decreasing chances of aspirating. The unique design of the straw lets you finally control the amount of liquid and the velocity of each sip, making it easier for people with swallowing issues to drink safely. If you're interested in purchasing a Sipify straw for yourself or for a loved one, I mean, hey, why not use it to prevent tea stains while drinking red wine too? They come in a two-pack, one regular size and one travel size, and the cleaning device. You can buy your straws by heading over to Sipify.me, that's S-I-P-I-F-Y dot M-E, and enter code Nicole, N-I-C-O-L-E, to get 10% off your entire purchase at checkout today. Thank you so much for listening. Not only do we hope you learned tons about health and performance in this episode, but we want you to learn more. That's why Dr. Rachel Pajednik is offering 15% off of her educational courses for listeners of the Major League Nutrition Podcast with code STRONGPROCESS15. That's all caps, STRONGPROCESS15. A link to the courses is in the show notes. If you like what you heard today, the best compliment you can pay the show is to save the episode, share it, download it. And there's also a way to donate monthly via the Major League Nutrition Spotify for Podcasters show. Any amount is appreciated and helps us deliver the best content more quickly to you. 